The reading of the word is Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, please bow your heads with me. Holy Father, as we began this year, so too now do we conclude. Praying with our brother Augustine, great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power. Your wisdom is infinite, and we praise you. We who are just a particle of your creation, we who carry around our mortality with us, the witness of our sin and the witness that you resist the proud. And yet we praise you. You awaken us to delight in your praise, for you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. And so, Father, illuminate your word to us. Drive back our ignorance, drive back the darkness of our hearts with the tales of your power and grace found within the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, revealed to us here in Psalm 115. It is in your holy name that we pray. Amen. The date is October 25th, 1415, near Agincourt, France. As famously told by William Shakespeare in his somewhat embellished play, Henry V, the very same King Henry of England mustered his just shy of 6,000 men before a decisive battle against the French, who numbered somewhere around nearly 30,000 men. In other words, for those of us who are not good at math like myself, the French outnumbered the English five to one. It was destined to be a massacre. And yet, despite the overwhelming odds, after stirring his men with a rousing speech, Henry's forces fearlessly marched towards their enemy, certain that death was inevitable. But better a death drenched in honor and glory than one of cowardice and shame, and so they forged onward for the glory of their kingdom and for the glory of their God. 
sword-graced flesh, arrow-penetrated armor, man and beast alike fell in combat as the two sides fought mercilessly. Indeed, it was a bloody massacre. But not for the English. Not for King Henry and his band of brothers. Miraculously, the English decimated the French army. Whereas the French lost thousands of troops, the English are said to have only lost a few hundred. Shakespeare exaggerated just slightly uh, when he says in this play that they only lost 30 men. Uh, not quite, more than that. But nevertheless, it was an astonishing victory, justly said to be able to be placed right alongside those biblical wars that we read of in the sacred scriptures. Of We think of things of, such as Abram in Genesis 14 and the five kings. Of the ancient Israelites uh, deposing of the Canaanites in Deuteronomy. Of David defeating Goliath and the Philistine army. And just as these biblical figures did, Henry rightly grasped that it was not in his army, not in his sword, not in his bow, nor his war horse that deserved the honor, that demanded the glory, that required his praise, but God and God alone. The Lord had given them the victory. And so as his wearied men combed over the battlefield for their dead brothers in arms, a chant echoed across the bloodied mudfield. No nobius domine, no nobius, sed nomine tuo do gloriam, in English. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name be the glory. Today is December 31st, 2023. 608 years since that battle near Agincourt. The very last calendar day of the year, as we have heard many times in the sermon. Despite all the odds, we have made it. Uh, I can't believe it. We survived another year, if only just. Yes, it may not be a war-torn French countryside, and uh, we may not be walking around necessarily speaking the king's English. We speak American here. Uh, But in its own way, we have been given victory over another battle, over another year. We were blessed through sweet, restful seasons, new births, new engagements, new opportunities. Many gifts demanding thanksgiving. And yet so too are we burdened through seasons of suffering, the death and loss of loved ones, the dissolving of friendships, of bad medical reports, many trials tainting our reflections. Yes, we survived another bittersweet year, another extension of the dash between the life and death. And like Henry of England, we are now posited a question at the twilight of this battle. What is our reply to this victory? Bittersweet as it is. Who gets the credit for another year somewhat successfully concluded? Who gets the glory for preserving us through another year in our short lives? Is it our friends? Is it our families? Is it our church? Our jobs? Is it ourself? The noble King Henry has shown us his answer, indeed the only answer, and it is that which we call our attention to this morning, Psalm 115. If you're not there, please turn to that passage. This specific hymn is situated within the final collection of the Psalms that is commonly known as Book 5 in our copies of Holy Scripture. 
Book five is extensively, as one commentator notes, thematically arranged around songs regarding the consummation of the kingdom of God. Recitations of thanksgiving and praise, the lifting of our hearts up unto the Lord as we rejoice in his salvation and providential care against our enemies. Even more specifically, Psalm 115 here is found within a smaller collection of what uh, is a liturgical service that was often sung at the celebration of the Jewish Passover. These are called the Hallels of Egypt, Psalms 113 through 118, which draw the Jewish believer's memory back to the liberty and salvation achieved for them by the Lord in the Exodus. That is, directly following the Red Sea, swallowing up their pursuers. Their response was one of praise, of hallelujahs. As we see translated in the ESV here throughout these chapters, praise the Lord. We see that in verse 18. We could also translate it as praise Yahweh, hallelujah. Our Lord himself, we can assume, joined together with his disciples in the singing of the Hallel's before the partaking of the Passover feast, the very same in which he also instituted the Eucharist, the, the Lord's Supper. It is a song of thanksgiving to bring about an ultimate end, to engender our trust in the Lord, either in the fields near Agincourt or at the close of another year, as we reflect on all that has transpired, of all that the Lord has brought us through. And so, here at the end of the year of our Lord, 2023, let us join in the song of thanksgiving as we consider how the glory of God, the power of God, the love of God, draw us towards the ultimate end of trusting God, of trusting our Lord. Firstly, the glory of God found in starting in verses 1 through 3. I'll read it for us again. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Jumping to verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Our passage is bookended by one principal declaration, that the Lord is glorious. His magnificence, his beauty cannot be overestimated. His honor and his renown cover all of creation. Every speck of dust, every atomic molecule, all of it is drenched in his glory. To proclaim this truth, the psalmist opens by directly abasing himself before this glorious holy God. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but until your name give glory. He repeats that we deserve none of the glory, not a single drop, but that God should receive it all. Now, repetition in the scriptures is the equivalent of underlining or, or emphasizing a specific thought to draw our eyes and thoughts towards the truth being proclaimed. Humanity, by nature of being created beings, cannot hold a candle to the brilliance of God as our creator. 
Everything we hold to are, are nothing more than shadows in comparison. And that was all before the fall even occurred in Genesis 3. Now we skulk the earth dressed in polluted garments because of that fall. As Kevin said earlier, we, we are now sinners. And there's nothing now in our natural states that we can glory in, uh, save for the still refraction that broken image of God that he gave to us at our creation. And so the psalmist here in verse 1 emphasizes this unworthiness to encourage us into humility. That is how he is going to begin glorying in the Lord, is by first removing the glory from ourself. As you read in Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. With an eye towards the supposed grind culture of our day, uh, there is no amount of gritting your teeth uh, and pushing through uh, trials and conflict uh, that can bring about that, your, your desired end of victory. If the Lord, as we have sung about, does not grant that victory out of his sheer mercy, we will never have it. You cannot do enough. You cannot, uh, uh, again, strive or push enough to, to get that which you desire ultimately if the Lord does not give his approval. The glory then, if you are given that approval, if you are given that nod and that victory, belongs to the Lord. That is what the psalmist is saying. But the problem is, this is not our natural inclination. No, our natural desire, natural view is what uh, is tending towards ourself, right? We want to glorify ourself. We are the center of the universe in our imaginations. We deserve honor and glory for the things that we have done, those things that we have achieved by supposedly our own hand. It is our nature to scratch and claw uh, for some thread that allows us to take pride in the victory we believe we have won. Right? We have survived 2023. We have made friends with that person. We have saved a failing marriage. We have defeated the French army with odds 5 to 1. All glory unto us. We have done it. Perhaps the Lord may be given a little bit of, of glory, right? We can give some lip service to him, some extra, uh, you know, pep in the step. But ultimately, it was not God, it was us. But the psalmist is correcting this thinking. It was not us at all. It was God. God was, God is, this one who weaves the composition into focus bringing about victories and, yes, defeats in their due season. Why? For his glory. But it's not just for his glory alone. The psalmist reminds us with a beautiful truth that the glory should be given to God, as verse 1 at the end of says, for the sake of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That is why the glory should be given to God. Notice the, the covenantal language being uh, utilized here. This hymn is being sung by God's covenant people, by here, Israel. And as that is their identity, that they are his, he will keep them because of his steadfast love 
and his faithfulness. Just as a husband binds himself to his wife in marriage and her likewise, so does God bind himself to his own bride, to his people. She inherits his glorious name. And because of that reason alone, he will defend her. And beloved, if you are present this morning and are able to proclaim the name of Christ on your very soul as your Lord and Savior and friend, then that promise remains true for you as well. For we are his. We are his body. We are his church. And so for the sake of his steadfast love and his faithfulness, he will defend us. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So exalt the Lord for the glory due him for the sake of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Uh, for this is the, uh, the introduction of the resounding beat here in Psalm 115, by which we are marshaled to trust in the Lord. Calvin comments that uh, this is a point to which we ought carefully to attend, that altogether unworthy as we are of God's regard, we may cherish the hope of being saved by him from the respect that he has for the glory of his name, and from his having adopted us on condition of never forsaking us. The humility that the psalmist draws our hearts towards leads us to that blessed hope. That's where we start. But that blessed hope, uh, th this encouragement to trust, obviously is, is under constant threat, under constant attack. Daily is it warred against by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The psalmist anticipates this in verse 2. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Why should they? And this is not a rhetorical question. They truly are, the nations, uh, the unbelieving nations truly are asking, where is their God? And not without some form of legitimacy. It's not an imaginary blow, right? It's not a phantom pain. Uh, this doubt holds real sting to us, real pain. Where is God? Multitudes of well-meaning and, and, and for the most part logically thinking men and women have fallen over this question because it feels as if God's steadfast love and faithfulness are nothing but puffs of smoke. No better than the paper they have been printed on. There is a real sense of, of a uh, divine absence for life in life for many of us in 2023. God might be able to be sent to uh, uh, mentally, uh, but there is a, a real sense in which we do not feel God anymore in this world. Either because of the busyness of life or the running around at work, you, know, you can fill in the blank. And so where is God, we hear cried. And so, I'm not going to belabor this point, but we can, we can fill the blank check there as to what exactly is, is the question we are positing, right? Where is God when my child was deathly sick? Where is God when, when the civilians were killed by that missile blast? Again, you could fill the blank in. Uh, but... All of these things are pausing, being posited towards us, being posed to us to make us doubt in our Lord. 
Psalm 115 is a, a, a psalm that is, uh, some com- um, commentators state, is actually being written of in distress. And these doubts are, are being posited so that we firstly would steal the glory from God and place it somewhere else, either in mankind or, as we'll soon see, in idols or in our modern day, just in the grave, in our, this darkened cosmos we live in now where everything is just material and uh, just, it just is what it is. And the, psalm, the psalmist responds by saying that the Lord is not dead or absent nor apathetic. He points to the glory of God's sovereignty over these cosmos and over all of these events that we question that have marked our history books. He responds in verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does All that he pleases. The heavens, in verse 16, are the Lord's heavens. But the Lord, he has given to the children of man. And this is not a declaration of uh, where in in space-time God resides. He's not up in the clouds sitting on some like golden throne necessarily. But rather, it is a, a declaration of the supremacy of God over All things, again, as Psalm 33 expresses it, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He he frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. He is not confined, as we shall soon see, to blocks of wood or or, uh, uh, words on a page. He is beyond that. He holds the universe within the palms of his hands fashioning all things according to his good design. Even when, as men are producing evil, God means it for good. He is exuberantly glorious. That is why you should praise him. Unless we think the heavens are too high for us to comprehend in our post-enlightenment world. If we think that, uh, yeah, this sounds all well and good, but again, this is all sort of out there in the aether, right? It's sort of, there's nothing tangible We just left the season of Advent. And so I must point us to Christ, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who, as Hebrews tells us, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The heavens, the earth, all of creation is, is the God-man's, is, is Christ. It is all his, something that is tangible, that really did uh, exist in this world, that will come again, as we've been singing and, and thinking of for the past month. And we have been given a glorious part within that narrative of, of redemption as the psalmist illuminates for us in verses 16 and 18, or through 18, rather. We are to steward this earth as his ambassadors to eternally worship him in this life he has bestowed us, that he has given to us. For the dead do not. Indeed, the dead cannot. We are eternally cry out, not unto us, O God, not unto us, but unto your name be the glory, as worshiping stewards of this world, blessing the Lord for for the work he has done in Christ and in us. This is his glory. This is his steadfast love. 
This is his faithfulness. It is Jesus Christ. Now, glory alone is a frightful thing we see in the scriptures. Uh, typically, when uh, men are, are brought before it, they typically respond by dropping to their knees and, and begging not to be just erased out of existence. But that is not all that we see that is terrifying in the scriptures. So also is his power, God's power, which brings us to our second point, the power of God. Uh, and we could also add, and not of, of idols, right? For our response to the above question, right, where is their God, is often met by a desire to point to something tangible, something we can see and touch and feel. We form idols of our own making to comfort us in our sufferings and to which we can falsely attribute glory and honor to. When, of course, if you really think about it, the real honor and glory we are reserving for ourselves as masters over these idols, if perhaps somewhat subconsciously. When someone says, for instance, all glory to Allah, or um, you can fill in the, 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 the false god, you could say, well, they're just worshiping their own god. Well, um, again, I get ahead of myself. Think of the person who never speaks of God in daily life. Right, who, who the name of the Lord never graces their lips if you are just talking to them in, in a daily, like if you just were to walk around with them all day. And yet when something they like occurs to them, they all of a sudden praise God for it. All of a sudden they are, they're pointing up and saying, it was all God all along. Yes, Lord. Despite the fact that, again, their lives and, and, and their words and their actions seem to point to the exact opposite. Um, well, that is a form of idolatry in, in a way. Uh, because this God that they are praising is, is a God who only wants what is good for them in their own estimation, not what is actually good. There are other examples, other idols we can, we can cling to, we can hold to, right? Our favorite person, our hobbies, our occupations, pointing to our health, or the wealth that we have acquired. We can cling to the past or um, presumptuously trying to plan for our future. We can, we can try to, to glory in all of these things. All of these are ripe and ready for the taking. Our hearts willing to state, here is our God, just as the Israelites under Aaron did. Now the psalmist exposes the folly of trusting in these lords of vanity as he starts in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. These idols are nothing but vain imaginations. We read about this recently in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 and 10. But note especially that the psalmist is, is not uh, pointing towards necessarily worship per se that he's condemning, but rather the trust that the unbelievers are placing in these creations. These creations. Because it is that which you trust 
that you will be tempted to worship, either in your own strength, your intelligence, your appearance, uh, again, fill in the blank, all of these things, or in God. Isaiah joins the psalmist here in chapter 44 of his prophecy, uh, wherein these idols formed and framed within our minds and by our hands truly offer nothing. There is no power within them except for which we give them. As Augustine notes, even their artist surpasses them, since he had the faculty of molding them by the motion and function of his limbs. Even you surpass them, although you have not made these things, since you do what they cannot do. Even beasts excel them, for they see and hear and smell and walk. Yes, even the dead surpass a deity who neither lives nor has lived. And if an idol cannot even surpass a dead man, how much worse the person who trusts in them. Again, those who make them become like them. And so if the dead are worse off than them, then what does that make the person who trusts an idol, who trusts not in the Lord? By absolute contrast, God's power surpasses them all. Unlike the idols, God has a satiety, uh, the power of being in himself. He is the I am. He it is who breathes life into us, into all and his, he's the one who snatches it all away. And again, he is not some distant spirit in the clouds, but one close at hand. In the incarnation of the Lord, we saw and touched God. He saw and touched his creation. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are now uh, uh, united to him. He is always abiding in us, as we mentioned previously, empowering us to walk and work for his glory and for our flourishing. And because of the work of Christ on the earth, his power is ultimately revealed in our salvation and preservation. Consider how the psalmist exults in the Lord, starting in verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Here we see a, a threefold group of people uh, whom the Lord has remembered being promised beautiful things. The house of Israel, house of Aaron, and, and those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great, encapsulate the totality of God's covenant people. They who are marked by his glorious name, as we've mentioned before. They are promised to be given increase and that the Lord will bless them. And these promises, just as we have elaborated on previously, are not just empty phrases. Unlike the idols, the Lord actually has the power to bring about that which he promises. These promises are grounded within the, his remembrance of his people. As one commentator notes, this act of remembering implies more than just an apathetic awareness of something, right? Akin to, for instance, that I am aware, that I remember, that I have chores to do when I get home, which will probably not be done. This remembering implies action. He actively remembers us and is therefore active in his blessing of us. 
Before we get ahead of ourselves, right, these blessings and the increasing noted here uh, must be placed in their proper senses. Uh, these verses are not giving us license to start a televangelist ministry uh, where I can wear like a ruby red suit with like shoulder pads, punching people for the glory of God and uh, taking their money um, under the pretense that the Lord will bless them and give them increase. Uh, no, the blessings are often so much more mundane. Uh, temporal, like on this earth and eternal as well, than what uh, Kenneth Copeland or the other false teachers might offer you. It is those uh, Edenic blessings found in places like Deuteronomy 28, wherein the blessings are promised through obedience to the Lord. Now we know that we are not very obedient creatures. Those days in which I follow the leading of the Lord and obey Him are perhaps my very best days. They are not always, um, they were not very often per se. Often it is quite the struggle to even trust him in small things. Yes, these blessings were forfeited the moment we sinned against the Lord in disobedience. But in Christ, the Lord is able to bless us with them if his sovereign pleasure deems it good for our maturation. If the Lord says it is good for them to have this, or to, to, in this way, be blessed. And that is not in our own estimation, but his. We will abound in prosperity, not in material gains, perhaps, but in the, the evening meal of our, around with our friends around the hearth, right? in the comforts of a loved one in times of heartbreak, or in just mundane strength to necessary to make it through another day, another week, another year. Yes, because God has remembered us, we are more blessed than any of God's creatures. His power is willing and able to be utilized as he sees fit to wield it on our behalf. And so flee from the idolatry of our hearts. Those things cannot give you any of these things. They, they cannot even say that the grass is greener on the other side. They have no voice. No, flee to Christ where all blessings and increasings are, are to be found filled by his sovereign power. Therefore, it is not unto idols, O Lord, not unto idols, uh, but unto thy name to be the glory. Yes, for your gloriousness and your power. And because you loved us, as your own, which brings us to our final point, beloved, the love of God. Found in verses 9 and 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their health and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Remember what we said previously regarding recitations of repetition, beloved. How they emphasize a truth to be meditated upon by our hearts. Well, that is the same here. Herein lies the impetus of our passage this morning. The crescendo of the chiasmus as the psalmist calls upon God's covenant people to trust in the Lord, for he is their help and shield. The language of shield draws our minds to that of, of a warrior defender defending those who are downtrodden behind his shield. Help becomes ally as the Lord becomes 
our Lord, our stronger ally and elder brother. And taken together, uh, we are given a picture of a divine protector caring for his people as they shelter behind him. Listen one last time as the psalmist of, of Psalm 33 illuminates the same truth. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The response. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. God's glory and power are frightful things to be against, but beautiful are they to those whom the Lord loves. This is where the heart of God shines forth for us in this passage. That his eye is upon us and that he cares for us as our loving father does his children or as a steadfast husband cares for his sick wife. As we end this year reflecting on what has transpired, as we count the dead, as we look to those small victories, and as we look forward to the next year that begins in less now than 24 hours, this is God's call to us who fear him, to trust in him, to trust in Christ, our hope in life and death, to trust that he is willing and able to bless us in his son, that he will give us that final victory over death, both being absolutely certain. Let your steadfast love, O oh Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. And so, just as King Henry and his men collected their dead on the fields near Agincourt, let us collect what the Lord has done for us, both in Christ and in our lives, as we enter into 2024, giving God all the glory for our preservation and victory singing, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Amen. Let us pray. Father, comfort us today. This is a time of anxiety, a time of, of, of anticipation for what you might bring to us this coming year. Lord, we may not even see this time again next year. You may call us home before that. And so, as we prepare our hearts and our minds, as we uh, uh, marshal our forces together, Lord, remind us again and again to trust in you and you alone, to hope in you. Lord, to see, to, to see the folly of trusting in ourselves, to try to glory in things that we have done, to take pride in those things. Oh Lord, show us Christ, how he's better than all of that. And Lord, if there are those here who do not know you, may they heed that warning that your power and your glory and your love for those who love you are terrifying and frightful things to be against but you bid them to come. You bid them to trust in you as well. 
Thank you, Lord, for this year. And give us many more, if you so would have it. Amen.